An executive order from President Biden aims to regulate AI and open AI has their first developers conference. All that and more next on AI in AV. This is AV in AI. Regulating AI. This is AI and AV. My name is Tim Albright. I am your host with us as always to discuss everything to do with the AI and going into the AV industry. First and foremost, Marin Corrigan from Microsoft. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here, as always. <laughs> Josh AI's founder and chief geek, Alex Capasalatro. Welcome, sir. Thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome. And from 22 Miles, Tomerman, welcome, sir. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And the reason that we all got together, first and foremost, uh, my buddy, Rachel Bradshaw, uh, who is fantastic, who is a wealth of knowledge and an encyclopedic uh, uh, thesaurus in her own right, uh, but also said, hey, you should do this on AI. We actually conned her into keeping her mic on. And hi, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for letting me stick around. Letting you, we forced you into this. Well, you knew I wanted to be on. I just needed a little bit of strong arming. So, all right. Thanks, thanks for uh, twisting my arm. Absolutely. Uh, so the first, we're going to co- cover a couple of different things. Uh, first thing though is is, is sort of quick. <clears throat> the other one is is OpenAI's first dev, uh, first developers conference. Not even a conference; it was a day, right? But the first thing is uh, an executive order that President Joe Biden put out. Uh, concerning the, with concerning AI, um, it is uh, executive order that says that these are new safety standards and security standards for AI. They require developers um, make sure that they have safety results in their um, in their AI. They want standards developed to make sure that the uh, AI is safe, secure, and quote unquote trustworthy, and also protect against um, uh, biological uh, dangerous sorry engineering dangerous biological materials which I found an interesting part Marin we're gonna start with you uh, you know Microsoft obviously leverages open AI which we'll talk about here in a second but generically AI this is the first step in the US government and I'm, I'm I believe it's safe to say any government putting any some sort of safeguards into uh, across AI. What does this mean to the AI part and and how will this impact the AV part? Actually, I feel like it's not. um, Actually, in in the European Union, we have been very involved with them and there have been um, rules and regulations. So we've been very, very close to that and working hand in hand with these governments. And I think we as Microsoft are for it and and for governance. Um, And so I think we'll expect to be very close to this side of it, uh, just as as much as we are with um, the EU. I do think with the EU, it did result in in sanctions. A lot of governments are pressing the pause button, if you will, on, hey, we're not going to allow this to take place in our country <laughs> until we do get these this governance in place. So I think to that end, um, I think we all want to be a part of the conversation. And it's probably the right thing to do. It's, it's a world that's moving very, very quickly. And we all need to get our arms wrapped around it and put some governance in place, especially around things like national security, obviously. So um, it's... Uh, a world that we will probably be deeply embedded in over the next several months, if not years, obviously. Really quickly, uh, because the the U.S. government has historically and almost satirically been slow when it comes to technology regulation, technology legislation. An executive order, and for those of you who are listening outside of the U.S., that is the quickest, fastest, easiest way for a government to say, 
hey, this is what we want to have happen. There's no legislation, no bills are passed. This is a U.S. president. This is the closest thing to a monarchy that we have or a dictatorship that we have is the executive order. That's a whole nother can of worms that I'm not getting into. Because anyhow, when it comes to the EU and the fact that they've already passed it, I find that fascinating. What's the expectation then now that, that the White House has done this for the other legislative, the, the actual legislative branch to come along? Or is it something that the you think that the legislative branch, the con- Congress is going to say, oh, Biden's already done this. We don't have to mess with it. No, I think there's going to be a lot more coming. I think it's just the beginning of a lot more legislation to come. I think it was a means to get the conversation started, in my opinion. Um, not sure what everybody else thinks, but I think just just the news over the last three weeks, I, I was surprised that it took as long as it did for something like that to come forward, to be honest. I think you're absolutely right. I think that we're going to see more eventually from the legislature, but that the, the this is not a politics podcast. I'm not going to make it one. The legislature moves slowly. It's moving especially slowly right now for a lot of reasons. And this was a way to uh, put something in place quickly because I think everyone in government, every side of the aisle is pretty embarrassed by how they failed to act when Web 2.0 rose up right, in the social media age, and how they failed to predict the ways in which that would transform our culture, transform our society, transform our politics, and that the and the risks that would come on with the benefits of increased connection. Now, this time, they see it happening. They see the potential benefits for AI to accelerate all different types of industry, and to have a lot of benefits for some like specific initiatives that are very important to this government, like microclimate prediction or national security um, or technology development, pharmaceutical development, all of that that they want to support. But they also see the massive risks. I think Joe Joe Biden in particular, I'll, I'll let Tomer talk about some of the other things he's been worried about, but he's also talked specifically about being very concerned about um, deepfakes, about uh, the ability of AI to duplicate somebody's voice. I think he said, like, you know, you listen to it and you you don't think, wow, that sounds just likely like me. You think to yourself, gosh, I don't remember saying that because it can fool even you. So I think that that because of the lessons of Web 2.0, the entire federal government, like all three branches are extremely incentivized to not be caught once again doing nothing. Rachel, you you brought up a point before we started recording, and I want you to reiterate this because you're the one that heard the story, not me. What was the impetus of said El Presidente in coming up, coming out with this executive order? I, I wouldn't call it the impetus, but I think it definitely sounds like an impetus to me. Along, and actually, it wasn't me. It was it was Tomer uh, who reminded me that this was true. Yeah, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning. You know, I'm, Tom Cruise changed. Uh, Changed the world for the better through an executive order mm-hmm. through a movie that he made. Yep, I heard. I heard that as well. That the the Biden administration had been looking at things. You know, Sam Altman had gone to Washington. There had been congressional testimony, but he got really worried. Like, really, sort of hit the emergency button after seeing Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One at Camp David, and thinking like, "Wow, this AI could be a real problem." I, I feel like the Toms of, of our our generation, Tom. Tom Hanks got us really 
scared about COVID when he had it first. And now Tom Cruise got scared about AI when he did it in a movie. So, yeah, I, I just think it's also worth noting at a high level, this executive order is a really good marketing thing. The proof will be in the pudding to see if it actually matters. I think it will partially matter for U.S. companies delivering products to U.S. consumers but the big ones don't care. You know, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, they're they're writing the rules while the rules are basically being figured out. They're not going to be affected. The bigger thing I worry about is will this stifle new innovators? And in short, it could, but you know, that's typically what happens with regulation. The bigger thing is non-US companies. We still can't really figure out how to stop TikTok. You know, the government's been talking about this for years and nothing's happening. Until we get a United Nations level agreement between all of the superpowers, if the U.S. is regulating what's going on, but China's not, that doesn't really solve the problem. And so I think this is a great first step for the U.S. I think Europe is ahead in certain ways, but I think this is really a global problem. And we have to remember, it's very easy for a couple people in Russia, in China, in some other country to deploy some product that the U.S. government is not going to be able to stop. And I don't mean that to say, you know, it's easy or unregulatable. I just think this is a good, you know, slap on the wrist first step. This isn't going to really stop real naysayers from, from delivering big products. I also want to say, I think the timing of this is really critical before the election. A lot of this executive order is about deep fakes. And I was just watching an, an interesting interview with Obama talking about his perspective on this. He says he's the most deep fake person to date in history based on just the amount of recorded footage and audio that they have about him. Right now, going into an election, if we don't have real ramifications for the news outlets and for big corporations to not put that content out, we're going to run the risk of millions of people being deceived. Look, we're still going to have it happen from Russia and from other places. But at least now there's a little bit of, you know, hesitation from CNN or Fox News or any of the American media outlets from putting content out there that they haven't really verified. It's a really good point in the fact that one of the one of the aspects of this executive order is the ability to watermark. And I'm using that term very generically, but watermark certain um, AI created uh, material, including deep fakes. Tomer, from, from your perspective, you know, what would this do and, and, and should should folks be worried or concerned both from an innovation standpoint, but also the, the actual users of, of AI? I think it's really about the data privacy, right? I think it's it's just safeguarding data. Um, and I don't mind it at all. I think it, I think we need that in place. Uh, to the UN part, you know, Russia and, and China have veto power, so they're not going to do anything. So we're, we're kind of got to just do it on our own and keep it within our own uh confines and sovereignty in some capacity um but uh no i for we're, we're already considering i know gbt is doing their enterprise version so everyone's trying to do their set of a public domain private domain and keep it all so i think as alex said the big companies are already thinking about it already creating the right hopefully the right uh regulations and procedures and workflows in-house that uh safeguard everyone and especially from the data per privacy perspective so this just kind of puts more of a, a stamp to that legitimacy. I think there is a bit of a game of chicken going on. I, I think, Alex, your point was really incisive. There, To a certain extent, I think part of the reason the Biden administration isn't even attempting to call for a pause or to put more stringent regulations in place like we've seen in the EU 
is because they know that there is no way that this development is going to slow down in China, in Russia, in other major global players who see this as a, a shortcut to superpowerdom. Um, and they don't, they are, they know that they can't afford uh, in certain ways to throttle the industry. So they're trying to figure out how to let it move forward as safely as possible. Yeah. And I think it's also just worth noting, I, I was reading some of the high level notes earlier. Um, so I pulled out some of the facts. This is really the beginning of laying out things that have to happen next. So just some of the details are there's a 240 day grace period to basically put together tools and methods to detect AI generated content. Now, if we don't hit that deadline, I don't know what happens, but basically 240 days to get there. Then once that happens, there's a 180 day basically period to figure out what do we do about it. There's a separate 270 day, uh, 270 day period for basically having the US Copyright Office figure out how to handle basically the IP side of things. And so I think it's gonna take the better part of 12 months for us to actually see what is this executive order really about? Because so many of the actions were, we know we want to regulate, we know we want to detect, we know we want to be safe, but we don't know how to do any of that stuff yet. We need we need time now to go and do the research and do the homework. Let me ask you this, and, and, and if there's not an answer to this, that's fine. The, I, I keep hearing there's not a whole lot people can do. And it, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, um, bad actors are going to do what they're, they're going to do and the good actors are going to follow the rules. I, I am reminded of GDPR, right? Which, because I like, I have to, I'm, I am forced by my own conscience to, to define everything. Generally data, data protection is ubiquity, ubiquitously known as the most stringent email protection and privacy protections. It is, it is in the EU. It is an EU regulation. Anybody who takes your information, if you're in the EU, has to abide by these rules or you face fines. Am I, am I wrong in thinking that this should be something in that vein? And again, if I am, then what are they doing to the bad actors who are ignoring, ignoring GDPR? So short answer, the second thing is easier, which is what are they doing? There were a couple, you know, make, a, make an example out of cases. I think Facebook was one of the early ones where technically they can fine a company millions of dollars, depending on the reach and everything that's going on. The reality is there've been a lot more cases where people are not adhering to GDPR and not really getting, you know, reprimanded for it. And so, you know, I think it's a good idea. I think the execution of it, you know, what is the, what is the appropriate grace period? You know, as an example, if you run, you know, a small hotel and you have a website and you hire some web developer to build that website and you put Google Analytics on that website, all of a sudden the hotel could be liable for potentially millions of dollars of damages that would take them out of business. The government's not going after that. The government's going after the Facebooks, the big companies that are utilizing data for you know millions and millions of consumers. So you know, in terms of what happens here, I think it's going to be the same. I think small players, you know, if a mom and pop shop uses AI to make some graphics for an ad in the local newspaper. No one's going to care. But when you're running, you know, national media for, you know, a politician that's changing people's viewpoints and you get caught using AI in a negative or, you know, deceitful way, there's hopefully going to be a big enough fine that they say it wasn't worth it. We won't do it again. 
And I think that there's also, I, I mean, I, I think we're probably also all watching the IP space, pretty the intellectual property space pretty closely. Like there's a, there's a lawsuit in play right now against, um, I think it's Stable Diffusion is the last player left standing, um, but that centers around uh, graphics, right? Using, using artists' work to generate AI graphics. And uh, they're, they're looking at the question about, of whether or not putting content into an AI and getting something else out is fair use or if that's a violation of copyright. And that's going to be a critical question for the next stage of, of AI. Um, already, uh, both Google and OpenAI, I believe, have uh, opted to let web domains say, don't scrape me, bro. And yep. then if, they've, if you've turned off the ability of those uh, big engines to scrape your site, then even if a user goes to them and says, hey, summarize this web page for me, and you send it to a New York Times article, uh, you'll get back a message that says, I can't do that, actually. I've been, my ability to read this site has been turned off. Um, so sorry. Now, as a user, you can still copy and paste the text of the article and get the same result, but it, it just creates that extra little bit of friction and stops the model from using that data in its training set. Um, and I think that's whether or not that becomes the, the norm. It's polite. They're doing it right now because it's, uh, it seems like the right thing to do and it probably is going to save them a lot of lit litigation. But whether or not they're actually legally required to do that is a very open question right now. Um, so I think in the public sphere, that's going to be really interesting to watch. In the private sphere, I know a lot of companies are really wrestling right now with whether or not it's worth it to expose their internal data to these models and get potentially all the benefits out of being able to leverage them to accelerate their work without really knowing, knowing exactly what the model is doing with that data and how it might be using it elsewhere. Um, that I think is a really challenging question and something that hasn't yet been satisfactorily answered by anyone with a sophisticated large language model to my knowledge. If anybody else knows that that has happened, please jump in and correct me here. Um, but hopefully something that maybe we could see in the future as these executive orders push some of the makers of these models to be a bit more transparent. Yeah. All right. Uh, second story we're, hit, we're hitting, we, we previewed this a little bit. November 7th, um, OpenAI had their first developers conference. It was a day, so they call it Dev Day, but it's, it is what it is, right? It's a little bit like, you know, worldwide developers conference from Apple and Google's equivalent as well. A couple things that came out of it. First of all, you can personalize chat GPT, customize and share, which I found interesting, a your AI assistance, uh, also GPT for turbo, which of course means it's faster, better, uh, and uses more gas, and um, also a, a legal defense fund. The last thing though here is I find interesting is they're hoping to be to create an application store. Alex, I want to start with you on this because you've had extensive experience as the, you know, actually Marin and Tomer does too, but um, in, in working within the confines of other applications and their 
and their stores. I'm thinking a little bit like when when Josh AI first came out, um, Josh AI was one of the first interoperable control systems for homes where, you know, Josh was able to not only have a voice uh, system, whether that's, you know, Google or, or Amazon, but that allowed them to talk to Control 4 or Crestron, right? So talk for a second about not just the App Store, but the, the other, you know, announcements that OpenAI came out with and, and the impact they'll have. Yeah, so I think first thing is on the App Store side, we thought about doing an App Store early on. I think everyone's thought about it. The world doesn't really need more App Stores, and I'll be curious to see if this is successful. The reason that they're doing it, and I, I think it's interesting to note the numbers, Altman was claiming that there were over 100 million active users. So obviously a lot of people tried it and then kind of moved on, but saying over 100 million people are actively using ChatGPT or one form or another, and that there are about 2 million developers using the platform right now. Something like 90% of the Fortune 500 companies are actively using it in one way or another. And so when you have that many people who are using it, and look, my company is using OpenAI's APIs for different things. It's you know a great set of tools that can be used in different ways. It makes sense to then think about if people can build businesses on the back of the platform, you build a great platform. There's been the Alexa store and the Google Voice store and you know, a lot of people have tried. I'll be really curious to see if this works. And the reason that I'm not super excited about it is I've seen a ton of different GPTs that people have come out with, and they're they're not they're not captivating me. I mean, the one that I played with the most was one that was entirely designed. It got sort of front page of Hacker News, entirely designed to help you figure out what wine to get for you know a dinner or what wine to pair with. And so they trained it on all the data they had about wines and, you know, where things are from and price points and all of that stuff. And I don't even drink. I just had fun kind of playing around with it to see, you know, how good it was. But as soon as I left, I just thought I have to really care a lot about wine to use this as as a GPT. Now, if I own wine.com and I had a little, you know, help me shop option, well, that's different. I think they're, they're applications that will make sense. But those applications you can do already. You can already build that using the APIs. And so the idea of the GPTs as a new form of a, a store, I'll be, I'll be surprised if it really works. That being said, there are some other really powerful things that came out of the developer conference that I think are worth mentioning. One of them, they basically came out with what they're calling the GPT-4 Turbo, basically the you know, more the more advanced model of GPT-4. And the Turbo model is going to process up to, I think, 300 pages of sort of standard book text. And so that is a much larger amount of data that it can process than in the past. Along with that, they quietly announced their own text-to-speech engine, which we've done a lot of investigating different text-to-speech engines. We build our own. We work with others. It's a, a pretty hard problem. This was like the little quiet thing most people didn't notice, and yet their voices are incredible. And if they continue to build them out, those are really powerful because auto-dictating, you know, books or news articles, making, you know, voiceovers for videos and commercials, there are all sorts of different applications that that makes sense for. And there's some small companies that are going to get completely obliterated because they're not needed. OpenAI is doing it at a fraction of the cost. 
And so that was one of the small announcements that I think could have a bigger impact on really what those of us who use them as a um, you know developer resource are going to look for. The last thing I think is worth noting is the excitement from folks who were there not to talk about it and not to tweet about it or whatever, Instagram, whatever they're doing these days, but to actually build, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I wasn't there, but I had friends who were, and they told me seeing that many people just live coding, building stuff, coming out of this, excited to build stuff, like that that doesn't happen out of the Apple, you know, conferences or the even the Google conferences. And so I, I think that's a really telling sign. Now, also two days after the conference, the entire OpenAI system went down. They think it was a DDoS attack, a denial of service. And so, you know, I think they're motivating people, but they're also starting to, you know, open up possible areas of, um, you know, just concern, if you will. So overall, very positive. I'm glad they did this. Um, but going back to the sort of major headline, launching GPTs, I wouldn't be surprised if that goes away. But some of the other stuff they na- they announced, I think, have much longer legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tomer, same kind of question is, is what, what did you take out of their developer day? I unfortunately don't have m- much more to say on that. I was I was not paying attention too much to it. So I, I concur with Alex. <laughs> that's, that's usually a good uh, that's a, that's a strong strategy. Uh, Marin, same question is, is when you look at this, whether that's the legal defense or the ability to write and, and, and process 300 page books, what were some of the things that you took out of this? Well, I, I think Microsoft, we actually, our, our CEO, Satya Nadella, made an appearance at that conference um, as part of the keynote. Um, he joined Sam Altman on stage, and, and we've had a really great partnership, significant partnership over the past year or so. Um, what I really love is is what we're doing with our GitHub enterprise for developers. I think we, we talked about providing better access to our co-pilot within GitHub Enterprise, which is essentially helping developers to leverage a, our own AI tools to create better code and invite other developers to build off of that. So I think it it's encouraging to see the, part, the partnership, I would say, number one, but two, the ability for us to um, announce new opportunities for new developers to jump in. Um, and it, it's only going to generate better prompts, better strength, um, better control, and better models, in my opinion. So it was exciting, I think. It's the beginning of a whole new world. There's a lot that could come out of these developer conferences. I think we've seen firsthand um, in the last six months, a lot of our customers using it in a big way. And Rachel, I think you called out earlier, like, you know, we did just launch Microsoft Copilot November 1st, broad availability for um, enterprise customers to use that. And um, it's exciting. You know, I think those that have made the jump in the hurdle, they're not doing so and giving it to every single employee, but they're putting their toe in the water. They're testing different departments. Um, and for me, I think a lot of it is around customer service. <laughs> I personally feel like there's a lot of great benefits to improve and automate some things there. Um, you know, and that's and another part is sales, um, you know, which is another form of customer service where I think things are getting easier in the places that they should get easier. We're not um, in a lot of ways exposing huge trade secrets in some of those models, I would say. Um, it's it's allowing us just to be better servants to our customers. So I, I think it's exciting. Um, I could talk for hours about open AI, but I'll just stop there. <laughs> 
I think that I I was fascinated to hear Alex say that he thinks maybe the App Store is not the 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 big news that everybody's made it out to be because you know me layperson I'm like wow the App Store, um, but I think that upon reflection after listening to everybody on the call I think perhaps the most important thing about GPTs is as a PR move. Uh, it's as a move to get lay people like me to think about what else they could be doing with these tools. Because um, I don't know if anybody else in the call has played around with GPTs yet, but I have. It's a, it's, and I'm not a developer, right? I'm not a coder. It's a, they have a, a no-code portal where you can go in and just have a conversation about with the the tool about what kind of personalized tool you would like to exist to exist and it'll try to build it for you in a little sandbox and if you like it you can save it um and i had a couple of observations for this from this experience one is that if you're not really a developer if you don't really know how to code then getting a tool that does what you want it to do without that ability to go in there and like really tweak what it's doing uh, on a code level is really hard. So it it does sort of train you to think about like, oh, what it, what could I be using this tool to accelerate that I'm not currently using it to do? And you can play around with it and you can get pretty close. But at a certain point, at least for me, what you realize is, okay, this tool probably is powerful enough to do this task, I'm not powerful enough to get it to do it. So I need a partner. Um, and I think that that's going to open up a lot of opportunity for people to either reach out to a Microsoft or a 22 Miles or a Josh AI, depending on what their application is, to say like, hey, I know you guys are operate in the AI space. I need this AI application can I use your tool to do this? Or can you help me develop the tool that is going to work for me? Because I think that like all of these pieces locking together can accelerate us really far, really fast. But it's in a way sort of, sort of reminds me of the old Apple app store, right? When we all got the message that, oh, there's an app for that. And if there's not an app for that, maybe I can build one. But then a lot of people pretty quickly got to, oh, wait a minute, I'm not an app developer. <laughs> I have to, I oh, have yeah. to either hire one of those or find a company that is that specializes in app development to help me do that. And I like I can make the app exist, but maybe I can't do it myself. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Yeah, just just to jump in on that, I guess my viewpoint is, I download an app like the Uber app, when I'm thinking that I want a tool on my phone to call a car and get around, I think I personally want to use GPT technology just in my day-to-day life. So one of the GPTs I saw was a cover letter GPT. It helps you write cover letters. I don't necessarily want to go look for that tool. I just want that to be a prompt when I'm opening Microsoft Word or Google Docs or writing an email. And so I think the more that these technologies just show up in the places we are anyway, I'm on kayak booking a flight and there's a little, you know, clippy that says, you know, can I help you plan your trip? Those ways of basically coming into my world instead of me going and searching an app. And look, it might not be that different than what they're doing. It's just more about getting partner companies to say, 
I'm going to build this into my email. I'm going to build this into my, you know, texting app. I'm going to build this into my support system. And look, I think it's great, you know, even for our industries to say, can I build a custom tech support tool for my customers to be able to get the help they need? Maybe a GPT is the way you build the technology, but no one's going to go looking for that. It just needs to show up on my help pages. Oh yeah, you're absolutely, you're, you could not be more right. And I agree that the, uh, the, the G, the APIs to these various AIs to, you know, chat to GPT or is it Llama? Llama is Metas or Anthropics, like what have you. The, the APIs are, are more powerful and what most enterprises probably want to use or to engage with a partner to help them use so that they can embed it into their experience instead of like sending them to open AI's experience. <laughs> like that's- well, and, and let's not be silly here. You know, the, a, a, any customer, any corporation with their salt, their point is to keep you on their site and in their yeah. ecosystem as long as possible. Yep. Yeah. Just to, uh, just to throw in, you know, some 22 miles highlights here. Um, that is what 22 miles is doing, right? We, we were literally creating what's called AI back office and we're doing AI training on the organization's data support FAQs. Um, and you can embed that into your website or into your internal, uh, information and actually have like a chat bot that's conversational generative AI within your own database of information, your security questions. And it basically creates that, um, well, the back office experience. And then we also have that for what we call AI assistant. And we're speaking to the cabs about putting that on their website and like where, what are, what are the promotions or what are the events or what all that. And again, there'll be a little, little pop up there. So, and then on top of that, we're doing that in our own software that you'll have a ask AI and you can start commanding AI to do your editing within the software. So those are all the exact things that we're doing right now. And so those are widgets ready to be clicked and leveraged really easily. Yeah. And I I think that's the more powerful form that it's going to take. I think what GPTs is going to do is to open the masses eyes to the availability of that more powerful form and hopefully lead them to it. That'll be a good place to stop. Thank you all so much. Marin Corrigan. Uh, thank you, ma'am. How do people connect with you or Microsoft? Microsoft.com. Yeah, check it out. <laughs> right. Very good. Alex Caposalatro. Thank you, sir. How do people connect with you or Josh AI? You can just reach out directly, alex at josh.ai. Also on LinkedIn, all the socials, and learn quite a bit about us on the website, josh.ai. All right. Very cool. Tom Ramon, thank you, sir. Uh, how do people connect with you or 22 Miles? Uh, yeah, uh, 22miles.com or any of the socials um, and happy to help and further engage. And Ms. Bradshaw, thank you, ma'am. Uh, how do people connect with you or or uh, Castro Communications? Uh, you can connect with me uh, on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place. Or you can find me across other socials at Tempurity. And you can follow Castor at castorcom.com. That's castorcom with two ms.com. You can also find us on the socials, across socials as Castorcom. Right, very good. For me, for Tom Albright, don't follow me on any of the socials. I'm pretty boring, but go by the website, avianation.tv. It's avianation.tv. You'll find programs like this and a host of others. All that and more at avianation.tv. That's avianation.tv. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation.